Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Father, yours, yours is the name that deserves all praise and all glory and all honor. And so God, we give it to you. Lord, that's why we sing, because in every way, because of all that you have done, Lord, in creating us, And redeeming us through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, you deserve the praise. And so, Lord, I pray that that would not just be an expression of our lips, but it would be the posture of our heart this morning, God. That there is nothing in this world so worthy as to know you, as to praise you, as to exalt in you. And so, God, we thank you. We give you all the praise. Lord, we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab your seat, and as you do... Grab your copy of God's Word and open it up to Genesis chapter 25. As you're flipping there, I just want to highlight some of the things that God is doing in our midst. That was very angelic. (laughs) I have high hopes for what's going to happen in this message now. Um, I want to highlight some of the things, some of the work that God is doing in our midst at Redemption Church. This past week, uh, we had a number of people here at Inova to gather, to pray, and every time we do that, God moves in power. A number of people were incredibly encouraged as they gathered here to pray. And then on Friday, the women of our church met about uh, mid-30s, I think, women met together, and a number of others of you who wanted to be there but weren't able to make it out. And the Lord just blessed that gathering. That's what happens when believers gather, whether it's in small group, whether it's as women or men, as youth, or on a Sunday morning. When believers gather, God promises to show up and bless. And I've talked to so many women who went to that event. They were so blessed by it, uh, so encouraged by each other. And I just want to, want to encourage you, if you're not plugging into the life of this church, if you're not plugging into relationships with other people in this church, can I just let you know that you are missing out on the blessing that God promises for you in those relationships. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus comes, this is another sermon I'm starting to preach, I'm sorry, but here we are. When Jesus comes, He does not just preach a lecture with the expectation that you come and listen and leave and then we'll be blessed by that. Instead, what do you find Jesus doing? He's with people. He's constantly with people. And so can I just encourage you to press in to relationship in this church? We try to make it as easy as possible for you. We want you to experience the blessings that many are experiencing in this church. Now, Genesis 25, we've been for several weeks walking uh, alongside the father of faith, many have called him, Abraham. And in the chapter that we're going to study this morning, our friend, our acquaintance that we've become so familiar with, dies. Look what it says in Genesis 25, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 170 years. Abraham breathed his last and, and died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, it's good at this moment that we're at in the text just to maybe spend some time reflecting on the life of Abraham. You'll remember if you've been with us walking through Genesis that in chapter 12, verses 4 to 5, we were told that Abraham was 75 when he was called from the land that he grew up in to to leave Haran and to go to the land of Canaan. And then after 10 years of journeying and waiting, knowing that God had promised him a son when he arrived there. Abraham was 85 when he 
was wed to Hagar and birthed Ishmael. And we're told in Throughout Genesis 21 to 25, a few other important milestones in Abraham's life. He was 125 years old when he gave birth to Isaac. He was 137 when Sarah, his beloved wife, died. And when Isaac was married to Rebekah, we're told that Abraham was 140 years old. And here we find in Genesis 25, verses 7 and 8, that that Abraham finally breathes his last breath at the ripe old age of 175 years. Now, sometimes you have to use your imagination in Scripture. I have no idea what Abraham felt like after living on this world for 175 years. I do know this, that it's a rule that every decade your body breaks down more and more, isn't it? I remember when I turned 30, uh, everyone giving me the warning, oh man, 30 is it. 30 is where you start going downhill, but you can't be told that without a 40-year-old jumping out of nowhere and telling you, no, just wait till you're 40. And then you look in the background, and the 50-year-old's not even there yet because he's got so many aches and pains, he's still making his way across the parking lot, and this is how it goes. And so if that's how it goes, decade by decade, we just get worse and worse. I have no idea how Abraham feels in his 170s. He's topped us all. And by all accounts, Abraham's life is extraordinary. He experienced extraordinary works of God in his midst. You'll remember the the high of God calling him to leave his family, to leave his land, and to go to Canaan. You remember his obedience to God in the call to circumcision. You remember the time that Abraham just took a handful of men and defeated all the eastern kings of the Canaanites. And especially the high of his life on Mount Moriah where he met Jehovah Jireh. Abraham, by all comparisons, he lived an extraordinary life. And yet you know that even though I'm bad at math, I love to do it. And so if we calculate all the extraordinary days, maybe if we pitted extraordinary versus ordinary in Abraham's life and we stacked them up by my estimation, and this really depends on how long the conquest through Canaan took for Abraham, But it's only about 100 days that Abraham lived where he saw the extraordinary work of God working in that day. And if Abraham lived 175 years, that means there are 63,000 other days that were just ordinary for Abraham. That means for such an extraordinary life that Abraham lived, only 0.15% of his life was really extraordinary. Now, I'm going to wager that you and I do not have as crazy of a life as Abraham had. And so it's likely that even for us, the statistics are even less than that. That if we were to mark up all the days in our life that are considered extraordinary, it would be relatively few. Sure, there are the times where we face extreme suffering or maybe the highs of life's greatest joys. But my question is, what about the other 99% of our life that, by all accounts, really seem ordinary? Isn't it true that for many of us, most of our time is spent doing ordinary things, things that we might even call mundane? And so many of us have, you know, the nine-to-five job. We go Monday to Friday, and on the weekend, we got to do the same laundry that we did last weekend, and every night, we got to cook the same dinner that we cooked last week, and 
Some of us have kids, and the days are certainly long, the years are short, but we are experiencing the mundane of raising children. The reality is, as we think about our life, most of our days are ordinary, aren't they? We don't hear the voice of God calling us to leave to Haran. And so as I look at Abraham's life, especially in Genesis 25, I'm asking this question, what do, how do we live a life that glorifies God on the ordinary days of life? You know, when life is hard, when we're suffering, when we're walking through those moments where we're like, this is kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, in those moments, it's usually pretty easy to acknowledge God, isn't it? That's why even on unbelievers, even on days like their wedding days, they're, they're happy to acknowledge God on that day. And my question is, how do we live a life in the ordinary times that brings glory to God? And the answer that we find in Genesis 25 is this, that a faithful life lived to the glory of God, it rests in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. See, what we've seen throughout Genesis 25 is that God is teaching Abraham to rest in him while God takes care of pushing the mission forward. For those 63,000 days that Abraham lived, in which nothing really extraordinary happened, it was required of Abraham that he would rest in God's sovereign control over the universe. That Abraham would rest in this understanding that God is accomplishing things today. And so in chapter 25, what happens is the sovereignty of God is put on full display, and it compels us to spend every day of our lives resting in it. And so I want you to see this in Genesis 25, but before we do that, we need to come to an understanding of what God's sovereignty even is. So let me maybe define God's sovereignty as simply as I can. The sovereignty of God is God's power to accomplish anything he wills. The sovereignty of God is God's power to accomplish anything he wills. Think about the psalmist in Psalm 115 verse 3. He says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. If God decides to do something, he has the sovereign power, according to his providence, to be able to accomplish the thing that he has set out to do. You'll remember that God said to Abraham, when, Abraham prom- when God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, God said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? And there we saw the sovereignty of God on display. Like God saying, like, of course I can do this. I'm God. I'm sovereign. Prophet Jeremiah responds to that question, saying, nothing, nothing is too hard for you, Lord. And so in chapter 25 of Genesis, we get this understanding that God is sovereign, and what God is calling us to do this morning is to rest, to rest in his sovereign control. Well, this is the first thing I want you to see if you're taking notes this morning. I want you to see this in Genesis 25, that the reason we can rest in his sovereignty is because he powerfully designs our stories. The reason I can rest in God's sovereignty is because he powerfully designs my story. Now, in the last days of Abraham's life, we see God's power and sovereignty at work. You remember throughout Genesis that God had given Abraham a threefold promise, a promise of land, blessing, and seed. And in these last days of Abraham's life, we really see these promises coming to fulfillment. So that last week when we were together, we read in Genesis 24, 1, that God had blessed Abraham in all things. All the things that God had told Abraham were going to happen. 
All the promises that Abraham had been given were beginning to come to fulfillment in Abraham's life. And so what we find in Genesis 25, and especially in verses 1 to 6 here, is the continuing of the blessing and fulfillment of the promises that God had given to Abraham. So then in verse 1, Abraham takes another wife after the death of Sarah, whose name was Keturah, and God continues to fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham that he would bless him and that from his lineage would come many nations. And so we read of many nations that Abraham and Keturah, many children that they have, they had that would turn into nations. You will recognize some of the nations there, such as Midian in verse 2. You may have heard before of the Midianites. The the, uh, people of God throughout Genesis will run into the Midianites again and again. So they also give birth to, in verse 3, Dedan, who is the father of the Dedanites. And what we see is the fulfillment of all these nations begin to come from the lineage of Abraham and this wife that he took on, Keturah. But in verses 7 to 8, we find that God does not only design the days of our life, he also designs the end of our life. So then in verse 7 and 8, Abraham dies, and you'll notice in verse 8 that it says he breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, for Moses to tell us that Abraham died in a good old age and for his life to be described as full of years shows us that Abraham was satisfied in all that God had accomplished in his life. Abraham could celebrate in his death because God had worked so faithfully in his life that he looks back and he says, those were full years. God was working in my midst. And I want you to see how countercultural this is to our culture today, to find satisfaction through death. You see, our culture is really in death denial, isn't it? We do everything to ignore death, to put off the thought of death, to think that that we are kind of like invincible, that we can escape death. We live in this illusion of invincibility and our spirit and a desire, I think, is probably better captured by the Bob Dylan song that many of us love, Forever Young. We have this desire not to grow old. We have this fear of growing old. We elevate youth. That's why entire social media companies are built on filters that make you look younger than you really are. 2018, I read this week, it was reported by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons that Americans, now these are Americans, okay, so we can separate ourselves as Canadians from this stat, but I would guess that it's probably not too different here. Americans spent over $16.5 billion on cosmetic surgery on surgery just centered around trying to make ourselves feel and look younger. And yet, as hard as we try, what Genesis keeps reminding us of, and what really life keeps reminding us of, is that none of us will be able to escape death. And I want you to see that you can rest, when you rest in the sovereignty of God, you don't have to fear death, Instead, you can face it and you can find freedom knowing that God is in control of designing your story from beginning to end. 
Remember that last week, the writer of Hebrews looks at Abraham's life and says he was living for something past death. Do you remember that? He said that the the reason why Abraham had faith was because he had faith that, that once he passed through death, he was walking into a city that God had prepared for him. Death was not the final word. That's why in verses 9 and 10, you'll see this is really interesting. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which you'll remember from Genesis 23, was the cave that Abraham had purchased and buried Sarah in. And there's this sense as in verse 8 where it says that he was gathered to his people that even as Abraham is buried in this field that he had purchased, this land that God had given to him, a fulfillment of his promise, Abraham believes he's going to be resurrected. And when he's resurrected, he's going to be resurrected in God's land. And this is what God's showing us. That the way to live a satisfying life now, the way to live a life that is full of years, is through the acknowledgement that there is a day coming where according to God's sovereign design, you will breathe your last breath. You woke up this morning thinking, wow, I'm going to go to church and be so encouraged. And here I am to tell you that one out of one people in this room, unless the Lord returns, will die. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 12, this is going to come up on the screen. He provides us instruction. Look what he says in Psalm 90. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Why is God's design for us that we can only be wise, we can only get a heart of wisdom if we number our days? Like the practical application here is that you need to take down your countdown till Christmas thing that's in your living room, and you need to put, on a, put, put up a countdown till I die. The psalmist says, teach us to number our days. Then we get a, a heart of wisdom. Well, why is that? It's because thinking frequently, not in a morbid way, but thinking not trying to ignore our death and thinking about it and numbering our days has this way of trivializing the unimportant things in our life and emphasizing the important things in our life. You've experienced that before, haven't you? Where you go to a funeral or something, and for a moment, God forces you to consider the fact that you are not, that, that your life is not going to last forever. Someday you'll die. And as you attend that funeral, doesn't it trivialize the unimportant things in your life? Like, haven't you walked out of a funeral before and just thought, man, I am pursuing the wrong things in life. I really need to start pouring myself into people and pouring myself into my rela- the relationship with God. It trivializes the things that are unimportant and it emphasizes the things that are important in your life. It shows us that only once you come to grips with death can you truly really live a satisfying and fulfilling life. And the only reason that, God, that Abraham here can die in a way that is his, he can say his life is filled with years, that he is satisfied, is because he has his vision on something that is beyond death. See, if Abraham believed that his greatest blessing was here on earth, like many do in our day and age, if they believe that their best life they'll ever eternally live is the here and the now, then Abraham could never face death with, as though it's something he could be satisfied in. He would have never experienced enough. All that he would have wanted was to live longer and live longer. And you see, the reason why we struggle to accept and think about death is because we think often too highly about this life. I love what one man says, GB Cared. It's going to come up on the screen. He says, the idea that life on earth is so infinitely precious 
that the death which robs us of it must be the ultimate tragedy is precisely the idolatry that God is often trying to combat. See, the thought that death robs us of this life that is the most precious thing that we will ever have is what God is trying to give us the faith to combat. See, faith looks beyond death and realizes that our greatest blessing is an eternal life with God. That this place is just temporary. That's why Paul in Philippians, he looks at death and he says to live is Christ, but to die, you remember what he says, is gain. Is gain. How, how countercultural is that? To be able to look at your life and say, in comparison to death, life is nothing. Because Paul recognized once he dies, he's going to be with Jesus. That this is going to be the sweetest experience ever. All, all of a sudden, death is minimized. All of a sudden, instead, death is seen as gain. Now, the focus of this passage is, as it passes beyond Abraham's death really comes to how God will pass his blessing how God will fulfill the promises that he had given to Abraham in the lives of his descendants and in the lives of his family. You'll remember that Genesis is a book about God's people. Moses leading the Israelites through the desert is writing this book of Genesis to the Israelites so that they can understand their genealogies, so they can understand where their ancestors came from. And so the question of Genesis is the origins of the people of God. Now notice that in verse 6, look what it says in verse 6. It says, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now if you've been walking through Genesis with us, you know that any time in Genesis you read the direction east, in your mind a little soundtrack has to play, and the soundtrack is this, dun, dun, dun. Anytime the people of God go eastward, horrible things happen. You remember Lot? He had two lands to choose from, a west land and an east land. And guess which one he chose? He chose the land to the east. And that was the land of Sodom and Gomorrah that years later, rain of fire would fall down on. Going east, this is not speaking of anyone who lives east of the church, okay, we love you. But going east in Genesis is always bad because you're going farther away from the garden, the presence of God. So the nations who the covenant promises were not for in, in verse 6 are then sent east. But in verse 11, look what happens with Genesis. It says in verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. Sorry, what happens with Isaac? God blessed Isaac, his son. See, Isaac receives the covenant blessing. What God is saying is that he's going to work through Isaac. He's going to fulfill the promises that he had given to Abraham through Isaac. Now, you know what's interesting? That the, the thing that the people of God had been told to do was to be fruitful and multiply. And the thing that God said he was going to do through Abraham is make his descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham was promised that he would, from him descendants would come that from him, nations would come. And here, Isaac is blessed by God with this understanding that the people of God is going to come through the line of Isaac. 
Isaac's children are going to be the chosen people of God. But you know what's really interesting? As you read through Genesis, it doesn't seem like the people of God are multiplying quick enough. Anytime anyone who's not a chosen child of God arrives, that person is the most childbearing person you will ever meet. You remember what happened with Keturah? Like Abraham and Sarah, it was like 130 years before Isaac was born. They were laboring for a child, waiting for God to give them this child. They just wanted one. And then Keturah comes, and it's like, it's like what happens in our church. Like all of a sudden, all these kids start popping out of Keturah. And so it is with Isaac and Rebekah. What we're going to read in Genesis 25 is that Isaac and Rebekah wait 20 years for the birth of Jacob and Esau. And yet Ishmael, what we read of in verses 12 to 18, Ishmael as well, and in his marriages, gives birth to all sorts of children. And it really seems like God is blessing not his chosen people, but the people that are not his own children. And don't we experience that in our life? Don't you look sometimes at the the things that you're experiencing? And you look at other people's lives, and you look at all the things that they're experiencing. And you think, what is God doing here? What is God doing here? And, and, and yet, what we see through the line of Genesis, through the storyline of Genesis, is that God is even sovereign over our experiences. The things that you have experienced in life, the blessings that you have gotten in life, but both also the things that you have not experienced in life, the blessings that you feel like you have not received in life, God, he is sovereign over them. Just because God's not working in in your life the way that you see him working in other people's life, just because you want something and you feel like God is not providing it, does not mean that God is not in control of the things that are happening in your life. Instead, the very opposite is true. There is a day coming for Israel when they will experience the blessing of multiplication through childbirth. In fact, Jacob will have 12 children. And yet for this moment, according to God's sovereign design, they're experiencing difficulty in childbirth. And I want you to see this truth, that God is sovereignly in control of the things that are happening in your life and the way that they are happening. God is not surprised by the fact that your life maybe feels like it's a bit of a train wreck, like like it feels like things are out of control. Instead, God is sovereign over all the things that you've experienced, and he's sovereign over all the things that you have not experienced. And do you see the comfort that can come from this reality? You can rest in this reality that God is sovereign over the things that you have. And so let me just, for a moment, apply, you could apply this to so many different things, but can I just, for a moment, apply it to singleness? I know that it can be difficult for you to hear this from a man who is married, but I want you to know that I'm, I, I, I'm speaking with a heart of compassion, doing my best to apply God's truth here for your comfort. I know that there may be seasons of loneliness. I know that there may be questions. And I know that there are certainly things you face that I will never experience. But that doesn't stop me from your pastor, as your pastor, being able to speak this biblical truth into your life. Do you know that God in this moment has the power, has the sovereignty to provide someone for you? 
And, but can I ask you this question? Do you in this moment trust the goodness of God to have not yet done that? God is doing this out of his sovereignty, but he's also doing it out of his goodness. And just because you don't understand why that this might be happening, you don't understand why you have to walk through this season in life, it doesn't disprove his sovereignty. Instead, you, in this season... You can trust in God's sovereignty. You can trust in that, that at the right time, the right moment, he could bring someone into your life. Or you could trust that he's maybe called you to the life of singleness. It's certainly the life that he called to Jesus. It's probably the life that he called Paul to. But the fact is that God is sovereign over any season of life that you find yourself in right now. And I want to encourage you to rest in the arms of the God who is sovereign over every detail of your life right now. The second thing I want you to see in Genesis 25 is that we can rest in God's sovereignty because he powerfully directs our steps. I rest in God's sovereignty because he powerfully directs my steps. So in verses 19 to 20, we find Isaac and Rebekah. And Abraham now has passed. And in verse 21, we're introduced to a massive, massive problem for the people of God. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, if we're watching the movie that, you know, someone made of Genesis, at this point, we are on our, the edge of our seats if we don't know the rest of the story. Like, imagine that you don't know the rest of what happens in Genesis. You're on the edge of your seat when Rebekah's barren. Why? Well, because it was through Isaac and Rebekah that God promised the, the chosen child would come. The chosen people were going to come through Isaac and Rebekah. You'll remember that the whole plot of the story is that God said to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that through her line was going to come one who would crush the head of the serpent and we're waiting for the hero to come and then now Rebecca's here and she's barren. And if she doesn't have a kid, you know what the story goes to. Ultimately, we don't have Jesus. Rebecca needs to have a child because God, the same God who by the power of his word created the world, by the power of his word spoke to Abraham and said, through Isaac, I am going to continue the cho my chosen people. It's through Isaac and Rebecca's lineage that I will do this. And so when we read in verse 21 that Rebecca is barren, it's really a gasp moment for us. We should not be able to believe what is about to happen because if Rebecca does not conceive, the people of God are finished. There can be no salvation. The story is over. But I want you to notice that as much as this is a problem for Isaac and Rebecca, it is not a problem for God. God, in this moment, he has no concern over whether or not the mission will be accomplished. Rebecca is barren, but for God in his sovereignty and in his power, it's almost like nothing has happened. He's completely sovereign. He's completely in control of every, everything. He's able to do whatever he wants from the grandest event to the smallest, tiny detail. This is the sovereignty of God. This is why I love what Paul says about God's sovereignty in Ephesians 1.11. This will come up on the screen. Paul's talking about our salvation, and he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things 
according to the counsel of his will. There's a lot of difficulty to get through in that first portion of that verse, isn't there, for many of us? And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But I want you just for a second to look at the second half of that verse. Look what it says. It says that God, regardless of what you believe about salvation for a moment, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I looked up the Greek for the word all things. You know what it means? It means all things. It means everything. It means there's not a detail in this universe that God is not working out according to the counsel of his will. Take a moment to consider how different God is from us. I can wish all things according to the counsel of my will, can't I? In fact, in the last few weeks, my favorite hockey team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, have made a lot of moves, and I've gotten my hopes very high, and I'm wishing a lot of things for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but in these last few weeks, they are making me think that I have empty, foundless wishes. I certainly cannot will anything with the Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't think anybody can do anything to help the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's very different from God, isn't it? I can wish all things according to the counsel of my will, but I cannot do all things according to the counsel of my will. But here is God, and the scriptures say God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, all that he pleases. I love what Spurgeon says about this. Look what he says. This is going to come up on the screen. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. Every particle of dust lands where it has sovereignly been told to land by the God who is in control of the smallest detail to the largest detail. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11 that he's sovereign over every small or large detail. So much so that he says he's even sovereign over your salvation. Even your salvation was predestined according to the purpose of him, according to the counsel of him who works all things according to his counsel. That's why Paul also says in Ephesians 2 that in him we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now we're going to deal with this in more detail in a few minutes, but, but right now I want you to recognize that in order for us to be predestined to salvation, God needed to know before the foundation of the world that without a shadow of a doubt, he would send Jesus for our salvation. That means that as Isaac prays for Rebekah's barrenness, God already knows what he is going to do. God already knows that he is going to answer this prayer. So we need to ask this question, why is Rebekah even barren then? Why does God even set up this scenario where Rebecca is barren? Because this is the way that the sovereignty of God often works. One of the ways that God establishes his holy will, one of the ways that God accomplishes his sovereignty is through human actions. We can believe here that if Isaac did not pray in that kind of made-up imaginary world, then Rebecca would stay barren. But what God is teaching us here is that the work of his sovereignty is often through humans who make personal choices that ultimately fulfill his purposes. See, what happens in Rebecca's barrenness is Isaac is given this role in the mission that God is pursuing. If Isaac doesn't pray, 
Rebecca doesn't conceive. But look what happens when Isaac does pray. God accomplishes his predestined purposes. He, it says, the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Can I encourage you, church? The choices that you make, the prayers that you offer up, the words of truth that you speak into a brother or sister in Christ in their life, the gospel that you share with that unbeliever in your life, these are all things that God is using to accomplish his holy, sovereign work. It's so fascinating how God's sovereignty, his predestined plan, and our activities as humans go hand in hand. On the one hand, Scripture holds up this truth that God is sovereign over all things, that, that, over all things. Whatever God wants to do, he accomplishes, the psalmist say. But on the other hand, we have personal choice. We have responsibility. Our actions change things. That's why James, it's so interesting. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Your prayers change things. While God has ordained all things to come to pass, he works through the activities, whether it's the evangelism, whether it's the prayer, whether it's whatever you do, he works through your life. And yet there's two dangers here we need to be careful of. The first is that we don't kind of fall into this fatalism. You know what fatalism is? It's this idea like God's sovereign over everything. He's predestined everything. So it doesn't matter if I share the gospel with that person because God's going to save him anyways. That's fatalism. And what we're seeing here is that's not the way God works. God may work through a really hard conversation you have to have with an unbeliever. God may work through a really awkward conversation you have with an unbeliever. God may work. His sovereign plan may be to use that invite, that Easter invite that you give to your neighbor to save them. But be careful of this other hole that we can fall into, into thinking that our prayers change the eternal will of God. If that was the case, our prayers would have too much power. God is not in heaven waiting for you to pray something and thinking, oh, that's a really good idea. I should go and save that person. I hadn't thought about that yet. That's not what God's doing. In fact, if our prayers changed the mind of God, God would not be the all-wise God that he is. God answers our prayers according to his wisdom, according to his understanding of what is best. That's why Paul says God works all things together for good. That's an incredible truth. God knows what is best, and he answers our prayers accordingly. Here's the comfort I want you to find, that because God is sovereign, we can rest in the knowledge that at the end of the day, nothing happens apart from his holy will. We find peace in that. We find comfort in that. We find hope in that, that the things that happen in your life have been sovereignly designed by God. I love what Calvin says. Look at what Calvin says. I'm going to come up on the screen. Sorry, next one. Next quote here. Next one. <laughs> Sorry, no, that is it. It's just not Spurgeon. It's Calvin. Um, it says, gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future of all, necessar all necessarily follows upon this knowledge, just the sovereignty of God. Ignorance of providence is, ultimately, is, is the ultimate of all miseries. 
The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Don't you start to see this? That when you understand that God is sovereign over every detail of your life, you can rest. You can take a breath. Like, it was not your presentation of the gospel that did not lead to that person's salvation. God could have used it if he wanted to. It was not your lack of prayer for your children that, that is the reason that they didn't follow Jesus. God could have used anything if he wanted to. And yet it gives us such confidence, such faith, because God does want to use us. And he will use our acts of faith for his purposes. Third thing I want you to see here is that he providentially determines my salvation. Providentially determines my salvation. Now immediately after Isaac's prayer is answered, Rebecca has a problem. Here's Rebecca's problem in verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The word uh, struggle here, the struggle that's happening in her belly, it's translated elsewhere as like this violent jostle. It's understanding that like these twins that are in Rebecca's Belly, I can tell that the women here are like, listen, every pregnancy is a violent jostle, okay? We know exactly what you're talking about. Now, these twins are, are struggling within her with such a great degree of violence that she's worried that for the life of the children. And she wonders, like, like, God, if you answered Isaac's prayer to give me children, why are they in my womb killing each other right now? Let me say, this is just the way any brothers are. And yet, in Rebecca inquires of the Lord, And the Lord provides comfort in the form of a blessing. Look how the Lord responds to her. The Lord says, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The response that God gives to Rebecca is that there are twins inside of her, which I'm sure is for a moment a breath of relief for Rebecca, but immediately settles into what her life is going to be for the next few years with the craziness of twins. But then God gives to Jacob, one of the children that is in the womb of Rebekah, God gives to him a blessing, and this is the blessing, that the older shall serve the younger. And what God is saying to Isaac and Rebekah here is that he is going to work through Jacob. Jacob is his chosen child through whom the covenant blessings that were made to Abraham are going to come. And so this is really important. We're going to come back to this time and time again because now what Isaac, Rebekah, and Esau need to do is rest in the life of Jacob because God told them that the covenant blessings are going to come through Jacob. See, here we see the sovereignty of God at work though. Before these children are born, before they've done anything good or bad, before they could have any faith in the promises of God, God had already chosen who he would work through. God had already chosen which one of these children would be the inheritor of the covenant blessings. God had predestined the election of Jacob to be the one through whom he would work through. This is the argument that Paul gets to in Romans 9. Look what it says in Romans 9, verses 10 to 13. It says, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And what God is saying here 
is that the reason Jacob would become the one through whom God would work is because of this unconditional election. It's because God had chosen Jacob. And I want you to see this reality as well, that if you're in Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. This is what Paul says of each of us that have placed our faith in Christ. He says, in love, in Ephesians 1.5, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Your eternal destiny in Jesus Christ was to be his child. Now, this should make our jaws drop in appreciation for what God has done for us. You see, the picture of our salvation often we kind of think of it like, like imagine you're in the middle of the ocean. You know, like in the movies, you see the middle of the ocean, you look everywhere, you can't see any land. So imagine there, you're there and you're realizing like, this is going to be the end for me. Like, I I think I'm done. And we kind of imagine salvation as, as like, we're just waiting for a boat to come and throw the life buoy out and we'll grab onto it. But actually, the picture that, that the scriptures paint of our situation is a lot more like this. You are dead at the bottom of the ocean, the deepest part. If there's any rescue rafts coming, they're floating on the top of the water, but you have no interest in them. Why? Because you're not alive. You're dead, Paul says, in your sins and trespasses. What the scriptures say is that when we walked in darkness, we had no interest in salvation. Remember what John says? That the light has come into the world, but people, what? Love the darkness. I don't want Jesus. That was our condition. But what God has done in salvation is in love, he has thrown his hand to the bottom of the sea. He has lifted us up, our dead corpses. He has breathed life into them, resurrection life. He has given us new life in him. God's salvation, it was a divinely and eternally planned rescue mission. This is why when Jesus comes, he comes on a search and rescue for those that he had already chosen to be his own. This is why he says in John chapter 6, verse 37, He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He came for the ones that God had already given to him. You see what comfort, what rest this verse should bring to your heart? Your salvation is a rescue mission whose success was never in your hands. It couldn't have been. You could do nothing to save yourself. It was in the hands of Jesus who came from heaven to earth and he committed to find you and never cast you out. He was on a mission to find those that were his own and he will not cast out those that the Father has given to him. Now Genesis 25, it answers some of the common questions we have about this doctrine of sovereign election. I want you to see that the fact that God has providentially determined your salvation, it does not undermine your responsibility. See, the the response that some of us have to this doctrine that God has predestined us to salvation that is in Scripture is that, well, if God has predestined me salvation, I never really had a choice. Like, God just decided it, and I didn't get to have a choice. And yet, what we find here in Genesis 25 is that those who are elect choose to place their faith in God. If that were the case, that those who were saved by sovereign predestination didn't have a choice, what you'd find is people like kicking and screaming on the way into heaven. They didn't want to be elect, but too bad, you're elect. But what instead you find is that no one who will go to heaven lived a life that proved they didn't want to be there. They have the faith to say, I want to be there. And no one on the other reverse side of that, that spends eternal, uh, is eternally condemned, separated from God, 
had faith on earth that they wanted to be, uh, faith in Jesus that would have led them to heaven, but they couldn't get there because they weren't elect. Instead, what you find is that as humans, we are responsible. Those who are elect choose Christ. So look what happens then in verse 29. Here we find Jacob cooking stew, and the idea you get is like Jacob's cooking something else up too. Jacob's got a plan with this stew. Stew's being made deviously. Jacob's cooking up trouble, and so Esau comes in to Jacob, and he's famished to the point of what he feels like is death. So look what he says in verse 31, or sorry, in verse 30. Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now look what Jacob says in verse 31. Sell me your birthright now. Now Esau responds. He says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now we need to take a moment just to say that like Esau is like that child that we all have that's like really milking the injury, okay? He certainly is not on the brink of death right now. And if he were, he could easily call out to his mother, to his father, who would provide food for him. Certainly he might be famished, but he is not on the brink of death. But what this does reveal is that Esau has no care for the blessing that God might work through him. So look what he says, of what use is a birthright to me? Which we would respond, if we could like jump into the scene, like you had a time machine where you could get into that scene, you would say, Esau, the birthright is everything. That's salvation. That's Jesus Christ. That's what the birthright is, is God working through you, salvation for you. It's the blessing that God had promised to Abraham, the covenant blessing. The birthright's everything. You've got it backwards. The birthright is worth everything to you. This bowl of stew probably had like lentils in it. It's worth nothing, okay? Too many beans, not enough meat. That's why I feel anyways. But in comparison to the birthright, it's worth nothing. See, what Esau chose to do was reject the blessing that God had offered to him through the birthright. And I want you to see, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you're making the same choice Esau made. You've looked at the world, and you've looked at Christ, and you've said, of what use is Christ to me? Of what use is the gospel to me? Of what use is the good news that Jesus has died for my sin for me? That doesn't make a difference. I'm pursuing these things. I'm pursuing the stew of the world. I'm pursuing the things of the world. And the sad reality is that there are many, many who will trade the riches offered to them in Jesus Christ for the comfort of a bowl of stew. And you see here what predestination doesn't do is negate human responsibility. Those who reject God, they do so by their own rejection of him. But I also want you to notice that predestination does not happen according to merit. If that were the case, Jacob wouldn't deserve to have God's blessing either. Jacob's action here is scandalous. I hope that none of my children ever treat me like Jacob treats Isaac and Rebekah here. I hope that none of my children ever treat their siblings like Jacob treats Esau here. And what Paul spoke to us in Romans 9 is that Jacob's not chosen because of anything worthwhile in him. Jacob is a scoundrel. He's devious. He's trying to steal what God had already promised him. No, the reason why God will work through Jacob is not because Jacob has any merit of his own. It is because of God's mercy. And that's the same reason that God chooses any of us. You know, part of the problem that we have is that if election is 
by God's hand, if it's God's sovereignty that predestines our salvation, then how is it fair that God would save some and not others? Why is that fair? And and so we respond, that's not fair at all. And yet I want you to understand that if we were talking fair, if we were talking fairness, then no one would be saved. Asking that question is asking it on the basis of merit, thinking that there are some who deserve salvation and that there are some who don't. The reality is that nobody deserves salvation. Listen, if we're talking about the gospel and fairness, you don't want fairness. Because the most unfair thing that ever happened was Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. He had never sinned once, not an ounce of sin on him. But you know what he did? He climbed on a cross and he died a sinner's death. He paid the penalty that sinners deserve to pay. That's what's not fair. And what's not fair is that any, any would enter into eternal life having not lived that righteous life. None of us merit salvation. All of us. All who are saved are only saved by the mercy of God. And you know what happens once you start seeing this reality? You find rest. You find rest in the fact that God is good. This God that created humanity, that promised to redeem humanity, He is not a God who is evil. He is not a God who is unjust. He is a God who is good and will plan a way that according to justice, he can redeem for himself his children who have gone wayward. And my prayer for you is that this morning, as you have seen the sovereignty of God on full display, you find your heart in a place of rest. That this sovereign God If you are in Christ, this sovereign God has done nothing but be good to you and pursue you in his goodness. And we rest in that place and we declare, we praise God that he is a good God. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, God, that you are sovereign and in control of all things. And in your sovereignty, you went out on a rescue mission for us to redeem us. God, we give you all the praise for the work that you have done through Jesus Christ. And we pray now, Lord, as we sing and declare these truths, Lord, that our heart's honest response, Lord, would be to rest in your sovereignty and declare your goodness over us in pursuit of us, God. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen.